No, and they say, no, I'm going, why would you not get with somebody who's local, regional, who actually gets Alberta, gets yeah. you, gets your company? So that's an, such an easy referral, right? So you can, Mark? And it should be. I think that uh, people are afraid of that. People don't want to rock the boat in a sense, right? Because it's, it's... I've been with Joe for 20 years, yeah. whatever it is, or it's a lot of work. Well, you know what? Yeah, but they can make your life way better. It, the transition of like switching from one banker that knows your story for 20 years to another banker that knows nothing about you can take yeah. a long time. Yeah. I used to tell people that if their banker switched banks, it, would, it might make sense to follow that. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, paper down. <laughs> there that goes. The test. Yeah. Whenever you're ready. Oh. So I can start? Yeah. Okay. What's supposed to say? Oh. I kind of do need that. Yeah, that's all right? Yeah. <laughs> no. Thanks for joining us today. My name is Robert Bradburn. I'm the AVP of Wealth Advisory Services with CWB Wealth Management. I'm joined today by Greg Becker. Greg is the owner of Predictable Futures. He has a numerous years experience working with small to mid-sized organizations, both family-owned and otherwise. He has a MBA from Wharton. He has uh, graduate degrees from MIT and somewhere else. Western. Western. <laughs> Greg, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, I've worked uh, for 20 years in uh, small and medium enterprises, leading companies, and um, got very used to the dynamics of family businesses and private companies and the transitions that happen with ownership and leadership. So that's where the interest came from. Sure. So, Greg, it seems to me in our conversations in the past that a lot of what you do is working as communication specialists, a lot of psychology that's involved <laughs> you know, ahead of time before a business transaction takes place. Would that be right to say? Yeah, I mean, I'm clearly not a psychologist. That's certainly not my uh, my strength or my credentials. But we are working on the relational and I'll call them the upstream emotional issues that have to be decided before a transaction. Because a lot of times there are issues that even the owners themselves aren't aware of until they get into it. But if you wait until you're into the midst of the transaction, they can often stall the process or slow it down and cost you a lot more money or have suboptimal outcomes. So we work on getting those things straight and that way the transaction can flow more quickly and be more of value. So you'd mentioned, you know, you use that term, those upstream conversations before the transaction. So I'm wondering, when you, when you think about those upstream transactions or upstream conversations, what do clients not tell you about? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I'd say there's three broad areas where people don't tell you about things. The first is stuff they don't know themselves. They may not have thought through or know about things even in their own thinking that have not yet have been exposed so you don't know what you don't know the second one is they don't often talk about things that are just awkward or challenging where there's a lot of conflict because they're they're difficult conversations and they don't go there quickly and they may not tell an advisor for instance or even their spouse um, 
And the third area I would say is the areas where um, they feel like they know enough to kind of get by, but they haven't really exposed things or experienced and, and explored things fully. And uh, then as they bump into more things that raises questions and they have to work through it, but they're not gonna tell you about that necessarily going in, especially because if they don't think as an advisor, that's your area of interest, you know, they don't go into their lawyer or their accountant or their banker or their advisors often with the personal stuff because they don't think that that's what the advisor is interested in. Sure. So where do you start? Let's say you have a, a brand new organization that you've just sat down with for the first time. Uh, you've got through the introductions. How do you dive in? Yeah, well, we always start with the people who have uh, brought us to the table. So it's often the founder or the owner of the company, um, often their spouse. But we will begin to figure out what their goals, their aspirations, what they're trying to accomplish. And it's never just about the business. Um, yeah. It's often about their own personal life, maybe in retirement, or it might be about their family and, the, and their, uh, what they want for their kids. Um, and we have to get into those conversations. And then we branch out from them to further uh, aspects of their family unit and even their management team and other people who are the stakeholders who are affected by the decisions. Right. So you had mentioned uh, family, uh, business, as well as the ownership. So how does that all come together? That's got to play a part in your conversation. Yeah, it does. Thank you. The, uh, the three-circle model, which uh, has the three sort of subsections of the system, the family enterprise system, which is the family, the ownership group, and the business. Of course, for most entrepreneurs, it's all one glommed together thing. They're in the eye of the hurricane, and they experience all three at once um, if it's a family-based business. We try and separate those out and we say, treat the family like a family and the business like a business and try not to get the two confused. Mm -hmm. That's easy to say, that is very hard to do. Mm -hmm. But what we do is we actually create conversations which separate them and they can think clear headedly as a parent or as an owner or as a business leader and think about well, what's the most important thing for the business and how do I think about that separate from the family considerations or the ownership things and so on. So that's a very important part of our process. Right. So. You know, if we were still to, you know, consider a, a wide angle and from start to finish, what does what does good look like in your organization when you're working with clients and succession planning transition has occurred? What should that whole process look like? Do you mean what would a great example of a client be or a good process? So, yeah, let's talk about example. Okay. Well, uh, you know, we had one family and actually it wasn't one family, of course. It was two brothers who had been working together for many years with um, a multi-divisional business, multi-generations in their, mm -hmm. in their uh, business, working in different parts of the business. And each of those people working were old enough that they in, in turn had kids. Yeah. So this is a very complex business, complex family unit, and it's all glommed together. And so when they wanted to do transition, mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of moving parts there. Who, who do we consider? Who do we engage around this? Do we split the business up? Do we keep it together? Mm -hmm. And Thinking about what is the best for everyone, how do we protect the family, families, and how do we protect the business, businesses, and move this forward in the best possible way that maximizes the value of the business, minimizes the strain on all the people. Um, that took a lot of planning. We, we ended up in a meeting with like 30 people in the room at one point, navigating through the various issues that they experienced or were, were trying to get through in a way that made sense for everybody. So 30 people in a room, obviously, I'm going to <laughs> with assume. Babies. <laughs> with babies. With babies, It was, it was, uh, it was fine, kind of comical, but it worked out fine. So I'm going to assume that that's a lot of family members, potentially maybe some, some key uh, employees as well. 
Would your clients' professional advisors, let's say their accountants or their lawyers, would their, you know, their professional team attend those sorts of meetings as well? Uh, it depends. Yeah. And certainly there, we try and engage them as much as possible because they are key advisors. Um, they do understand the financial or legal picture very well, the ownership issues. Um, and there's often a lot of trust. So those are very important people to have in the conversation. Um, they can often shed light on things that maybe their client doesn't even understand. But um, when we're talking about family issues, the family usually wants to just not okay. necessarily include them. Uh, they just want to keep it as tight as possible. And I mean, when I say 30 people in a room, that would be, that's not the norm. <laughs> that would be at the extreme where they were, they, we'd had pre-conversations with each family first, and we'd gotten a lot of issues kind of cleared away so that when we got everyone together, it was really a pulling it all together. Okay. Okay. So when you sit down with the family, let's, let's say there's not 30 people, let's say, right. you know, four, uh, four people, for example, right? So how do you pull that out of them? What do they not want to tell you about what they're going through? Because, yeah. you know, I imagine a lot of these organizations, uh, they weren't terribly organized to start. And, for, you know, there could be a lot of concerns going on that they're maybe ashamed of or confused about in the first place. Yeah, or just, just awkward, right? They're tough conversations. So the way we do that is we first have conversations with people individually and often as couples. Um, so we create a safe harbor where it's totally confidential and whatever they say will not be shared with the rest of the family. So they can actually be candid probably for the first time, maybe, uh, maybe in those bigger conversations that they've had. Mm -hmm. uh, once we've done all those individual conversations where we can see where the alignments and the misalignments are, mm -hmm. We always say we probably know more about that than even anyone in the family because they haven't necessarily shared with each other some of these more challenging things. Yeah. Now we have to bring them together and create a safe harbor for a larger group. But once they've talked about it once and we've, we help them navigate it because we're objective third parties. We don't, we don't come home for Christmas dinner that, you know, once we're done through the process, they don't have to talk to us ever again. Uh, we hope they do. But, um, yeah, we, uh, we create a safe place and we, net, we facilitate the conversation in a way that can take a lot of the sting out mm -hmm. of the difficulty things. The other thing we do is first, before we get into the tough stuff, we do a lot of work on positives. We work on what are the shared camp family values? What is the code of conduct? When we get into conflict, how do we agree that we will not conduct ourselves and how will we conduct ourselves? So when we get into those more uh, conflict or tense moments, we can pull them back to that and keep them safe. Mm -hmm. um, and we can take timeouts or whatever we need to do to help them get it through it in a way that uh, keeps the conversation positive and moving forward. So I'm really interested, you mentioned shared family values. So I think, uh, would I be right to assume that lots of times families don't always talk about what those values might be? Yeah, often they aren't, they aren't articulated, that's true. They're often agreed um, at a sort of a, uh, nonverbal level. It's something everyone understands. Mm. But, you know, you write it down and it kind of looks like motherhood and apple pie. It's like, well, of course, we all believe in integrity and trust or whatever, you know, those might be. However, the way they live them out uh, makes a huge difference. And when you have written them out and then you get into a point in a conversation where there is a lot of tension, maybe conflict, and they've bumped into it before and people start to get really, really uh, riled up to be able to say, okay, we said this in your family values. I think we need to get back to that. You know, it's kind of like calling them on what they've already agreed. And they go, yeah, yeah, I know, okay. It really helps them uh, self-regulate in some ways that conversation in a way they would if it was just themselves by themselves. Uh, they're used to flying off the handle, maybe. They're used to being in conflict. 
Um, and they will say things as family members you would never say with an outsider present. Our presence actually helps them work to the values that they always aspire to anyway. They just live to those better when there's someone else there. So you, Hi, everyone. Thanks very much for joining us. My name is Robert Bradburn. I'm AVP Wealth Advisory Services for CWB Wealth Management. I'm joined today by Greg Becker. Greg is the owner of Predictable Futures. Greg comes to us, uh, comes to us today with an MBA from Western University. He has uh, executive training from Wharton and MIT as well. Greg, thanks so much for your time today. Yeah, you bet. So we've chatted a little bit in the past about uh, you're not just a transactional advisor. So what does that mean? Could you give us an example of how you go beyond a transactional advisor? Yeah, we're actually specifically not a, tra you're exactly right, we're not transactional. We really tend to work on the upstream issues that drive the transaction that have to get settled before you can actually do a transaction well. So a simple example would be we had a family business and they'd been working for a couple of years to try and get the transaction done. Uh, and this is very common. They're, they're stuck. They don't know how to move forward. They have a son in the business who's not really getting along with the rest of the team. The parents are trying to make him successful, but it's not happening. His sister in the business is getting along uh, with nobody and, and creating her husband's in the business. And they're all trying to make it work and it wasn't working. Um, and so part of our job was to create a safe harbor where they could have the conversation that they didn't actually think they could have and that they hadn't been successful at. Once they worked out, you know, what was making things not work, they quickly realized, well, not quickly, but it took them a few months, but they actually worked through to the point where they realized it wasn't going to work in that case. That son was not going to fit well with that team and he was going to be miserable. Um, they could have tried to push that through on a transaction, but they would have doomed the business and probably the family too. So part of our role is to build the trust and communication to the point where they can actually evaluate things well, figure out how to make it work or not work, um, and, uh, and then find that way forward to the transaction. So you're coming in as an outsider. You have to earn their trust. Uh, I imagine lots of times in family situations, there's a lack of trust and communication amongst the members of that family. So how do you do that? How do you create conversation, communication, and build trust up within a family that sometimes isn't always working? Yeah, you know, there's an old saying that says uh, something like, they don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Um, and we really do care. I mean, after 25 years of care working and caring for family business and caring about the families and caring about the businesses, they can pretty much hear your heart right away. And once they hear your heart, uh, they will trust you enough to get them started. And that's usually what we need. Um, the other things we'll do is we'll have individual interviews first. So they can just tell us personally, without having to talk to each other about these issues, what they are feeling about this, what they want to accomplish, what they think the obstacles are, what the dream is, what the goals are. Uh, once they've kind of got that figured out individually, it's easier to have a, a joint conversation. And of course, we design our process in a way that builds, starting with a communication layer, then building trust, then moving forward into the more contentious or tense issues. So we actually guide them through and create a safe harbor all the way through so that they can get to that stuff, but not on the first day uh, because they're not ready. Right, right. 
So your experience, of course, is going to be vast in, in a broad range of different industries and business types. So you must have experience with a number of different clients. Um, tell me, do you have any, any examples of, of when you were able to really break through to maybe like a, a tough egg or, or somebody that you didn't think was ever going to come around to having those types of conversations? Yeah, well, we've worked with I mean, everything from retail and forestry to manufacturing and, of course, oil and gas and everything in between services, insurance. Um, there was a, an insurance company where we had a founder, it was actually he and his brother running a very successful brokerage business um, and a son of one of the brothers working in the business. The son was totally frustrated because he'd been promised for years he was going to get to move up in leadership, take over the company, um, not only from a leadership perspective, but also from an ownership perspective. And in the meantime, they're all navigating the family picture. But the son had given up hope. He basically said, this is never going to happen. They talk about it, but it just never happens. Very common refrain for that next gen coming up. The parents were absolutely committed to it, but the problem was they didn't think he was ready. Mm. And in truth, the parents themselves weren't ready. So we had to help them figure out what it meant to be ready what it, for them, uh, what it meant for him to be ready and to get commitment levels from both of the two brothers that this could happen. They gave the son enough trust to hang in there while they navigated through and worked through the transition issues. Right. So, so how do you do that? How do you build the trust and navigate through those issues? Yeah. Well, first of all, we get communication opened up. So we talk about what are the sticking points that they're working on. And, you know, they've all got a legitimate perspective. It's, it's very real from their perspective and it seems perfectly logical. Um, but they often don't hear each other very well. And families, you know, we don't always hear... You'd think we'd be great at our communication. Families actually can be very tough on each other. And so we help to open up that communication so they can hear each other better. Uh, again, facilitating the conversation helps them a lot because we can actually, you know, say, stop, go kind of thing. Um, and, and really help them to hear each other. Um, and it's not coming then just from that person, not from that dad or that mom or that brother or whomever it might be, but it, the advisor who is a trusted middle person and doesn't quite honestly um, have any one best interest, their best interest in helping everyone succeed. Um, when they hear it from the other person, it can sound different than it would from the person who maybe said it first. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. So you had mentioned, uh, we talked a little bit about these affirmation rounds. Oh, yeah. So tell me what an affirmation round is and how does it help? Yeah, when a family started getting going, especially if there's low trust, if there's been a lot of conflict, they've been through a tough time. Uh, one of the things you got to do is you almost have to get them to the point where they actually believe in each other enough to make it to want to do this. So we'll have the family in a room. Um, and by the way, you have to understand there are, there are spouses here. These are not necessarily all the people who are working in the business. They can be other people too, but they're affected because they're in the family. And we actually literally go one by one and we'll take a person and we'll have everyone else kind of just speak one thing that they really appreciate about the other, about the one being talked about, yeah, being affirmed. And we'll go right around the table. We capture all of that so they can look at it later and think how great they are. Um, that can be a little bit terrifying if you don't trust the other people because you might think they're going to say hard things about you or veil um, in a nice way they'll veil a, a dig or something like that. Or if you're just not used to that, you know, of a certain generation, that can be a tough thing. But, you know, often those are the people who hear things that they've never heard before that they do need to hear about their family caring about them, uh, for the pride that they have in, in people in the family, for uh, the way they brighten each other's day that they don't even know that they do, um, things that they've done in the past that have been wonderful, that were, are remembered. 
And that helps remember, oh yeah, that's why we're family. That's why we um, want to work together. That's why we actually care about each other enough to go through this well. So with that in mind, then it sounds like a lot of what you do goes beyond looking at an individual you know, transaction or thinking about a deal that's coming up, really trying to understand the individuals behind the organization, how they work together, what might be creating roadblocks yeah. for, for the success yeah, of that. A lot of it is the communication. And it might sound like it takes time, but you know what? One of the consistent bits of feedback that we get from clients is that we actually speed the process up. Because if they get stuck for six months or a year or two years and they're not getting anywhere... Or they started uh, an agreement with a lawyer or their accountant, so they're working on a structuring account, a company that then they have to undo because they realize later, oh, that's not actually how we want to do it or that's not what we're going to do. They've wasted time and money that is fruitless. So if we can solve those issues that are upstream, that they can have their transaction go through much more quickly, more efficiently, with way less pain, they actually are a lot happier and the business is maximized as well. So, Greg... What would you say the answer to the question would be? What do they not tell you about business succession? Yeah. Clients will often sort of um, obscure three broad areas. One is the things they don't know, um, things they don't know about themselves or about other people in the family. Remember I, I said that if, if we're talking to individual people and we hear the, their individual views of what great would look like or fears and concerns, well, not everybody in the family knows those things. And so they can't tell an advisor that. Um, they may not know it themselves. Mm -hmm. By the end of that round that we do those interviews, we know more about that family's alignment and misalignment than they do themselves because we've heard everybody. But they can't communicate that if they don't know it. The second broad area is things that are very um, tender or awkward or hard. They're probably, they don't easily go to talk about stuff like that. It's hard for them. Mm -hmm. It's been painful. Maybe they have marital strife on top of a succession issue and they're going, well, this is great. You know, I could torpedo my marriage as well as my business and... Uh, this is not going well. Right. They don't want to talk about that necessarily because it's hard for them. The third thing is that they don't talk about things with certain advisors because they don't really think the advisor is interested. If they go into their lawyer to talk about a unanimous shareholders agreement or their account to talk about restructuring or their wealth advisor, they don't think that that advisor necessarily is interested in what's going on in the background in their family. That's not something that they think is, uh, that is on the table. And so they're not going to talk about it unless there's a window there or someone invites them into that conversation. Yeah, and of course, that's super important stuff, I imagine. The more you get to know about the organization, the people behind it, the better you're going to be able to help them and, and come to a, a solid understanding. Yeah, it's true. You know, I mean, I think in advisors, um, every client wants someone who kind of gets them, mm -hmm. gets their business, knows enough about their family to understand the issues they're working through, uh, especially in these times of succession and transition. And if you find somebody like that, it's just so great because you go, they understand me. So that's exactly why we have brought you in to speak with us today. And that's why uh, when we do run into these situations as financial planners or portfolio managers with wealth management, because we have people like yourself to call in and, and have these deep conversations and, and you know, get a corporation and the family behind it ready to move into a succession or transition sort of situation. Yeah. And we have to remember that, I mean, a lot of times, I mean, most businesses have lawyers, they have good accountants. I mean, they're very good advisors. But again, those conversations have not typically been had necessarily with the founder. And they've probably almost certainly not been had with the next generation. And they almost certainly have not been had with the spouses or the other people who are affected. Because if those things happen in the business that affect a family, um, you know, those things have an impact. 
So if uh, all of a sudden we decide that that brother in that landscaping business doesn't get to stay in the business, they can't, you can't work with us anymore. Well, that affects his family. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of thing that is very hard for them to talk about because they go, as a parent, yeah, but I, I care about him and he's, he's struggling. You know, maybe he's got issues and we care about the grandkids. Well, we don't want that. Yeah. <laughs> we don't want those things to happen. And so they are tough to, to broach the topic. Sure. Uh, that was, the landscaping company was an interesting one because we literally had the family around the table and the parents announced that they were going to sell the business. And um, I'll never forget because the two daughters both went, what? You're going to sell the business? And, well, no, we want to buy it. And the parents said, you do? And I'm sitting and going, you guys don't talk about this, do you? Um, and so it was a bit of a surprise, but it was kind of nice. The parents thought, that's great. You know, our daughters want to buy the business. But then one daughter turned to the other and said, but I don't want to own it with you. Like, I, we can work together, but I only want to be the sole owner. And there's an awkward moment, you know, where you have to yeah. say, well, okay, how could that work? Do you both really want to own? You know, and we navigated and got through it. But, you know, those are not easy conversations for a family. Yeah, certainly not. And and I imagine even as a consultant coming in to have those conversations, that's got to be a challenging situation. So, of course, you're well trained, you're well experienced, and uh, I understand you've got lots of uh, lots of dealings in organizations like that. Yeah, there's few things we haven't seen. I mean, we've had siblings, brothers, you know, literally in a fist fight in the boardroom. We've had we've seen a lot of stuff. So the range of normal gets expanded. Mm-hmm. And, and the reality is, is that the most pr- uh, proactive, um, healthy families often, you know, go a long ways through to uh, doing the process well themselves. But even those kinds of families, you know, get stuck at times. I mean, we were working with a family, super capable, competent, uh, first generation, second generation, had some real estate. I mean, we're talking 40, $50 million worth of value. This is significant. Very competent, capable people. Everyone around that table was awesome. But the father and daughter had issues that probably go back decades. And you know what? Um, They weren't unusual issues. And they got to a point where clearly the daughter felt she wasn't trusted. She was still daddy's little girl. That wasn't the case, I don't think, necessarily. But she felt that way. And what the truth of the matter was not irrelevant at that point. It was how she felt that mattered. And the father was not going to get anywhere with this competent young woman who was amazing. Uh, financially very astute and we had to kind of help them have a better conversation about this and figure out another way to talk about it so that they could get past it. So in a situation like that if you didn't get past that if that was just something that was left unsaid would it be possible to get to an end transaction? Well they would they would have ended up in an end transaction but it wouldn't have been a different one Mm -hmm. you know they probably would have ended up liquidating the assets uh, not working together as a family which is something they wanted to do. So, and they would have liquidated the assets on a suboptimal basis. So they would have gotten less value out of the assets because they would have done a, a quicker sale. It took them longer, but they actually got patient through the process. They got a fantastic return on their investment. Um, they kept engaged with each other and ended up running the business collaboratively, which was actually one of their goals. So would they have gotten a transaction done? Yes. Would it have been the transaction they wanted? Probably not. Right. So you'd mentioned a little bit about what you do in terms of getting into the emotional aspect of a conversation. Once some of that is is uh, worked through, what are the more tangible steps that you take to help an organization and a family business prepare for succession? Yeah, once we've kind of figured out where the, I'll call them the flash points, the trigger points are, then we talk about, you know, 
ways to manage those trigger points because those will continue to be a, a factor. They're going to be there. So they have to learn how to self-manage that stuff. And we give them some very practical uh, ways to do that. And it's so funny because that one that I just mentioned with the father-daughter, they were very well aware of the trigger point. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I said, okay, have you guys, you got it? And they said, oh, yeah, we got it. And about three months later, I got a phone call. Okay, we don't got it. <laughs> They'd hit the same trigger point. Now, you know, I could have guessed that they might at some point, but you never know when or where. So they had to kind of learn how to do this and navigate it themselves because you want them to learn to, to manage it themselves. But as they got better at it and as they ran into it more, they got better at those things. The other thing we do is we give them very uh, specific things to work on. I mean, that they need to do to advance their goals. So you mentioned, for instance, the transaction. Well, they probably need to figure out how to structure this with their lawyers and accountants and their tax considerations and there's lots of other issues. So we'll create a timeline and a practice area where they can begin to make those decisions. Yeah. Oftentimes, as they're doing that, they bump into other roadblocks and we help them navigate through that to get them through to the end and post the end. But, we, but it starts with the, essentially almost like a project plan to say, okay, what is it you want to accomplish? We all agree on the end goal. What are the steps? And then let's work through it together. And as we bump into things, we solve them as we go. Sure. So when you're introduced to a client or prospect, uh, oftentimes they're already going to have their own legal team, their own advisory team. Uh, when you introduce a checklist like that or, or a list of steps to you know, push an organization closer to transaction, how do you work with that professional team as opposed to against? Yeah, well, first of all, um, hopefully they have advisors. Um, sometimes they do. Often, you know, one generation does. Maybe the up-and-coming generation doesn't have. Sometimes the kinds of transactions they're considering are not things that those advisors are well-versed in. There might be very specialized tax considerations, for instance. And so we can introduce those kinds of people who only work on that piece. So they can keep their advisors. They're great advisors for the normal things that they're doing. Uh, but we will help them make sure that they've got the best advisor. We'll always give them a range of people that they can work with, and they pick people who they're comfortable with. But to get the right guides for those kinds of things... We have to remember that these are often waters that they have never sailed in before. Mm -hmm. they've, they've never done necessarily a transaction like this. And even if they've done one, the next one might look different. And so sometimes what the value we can bring or that they need is that they say, hey, we know, we know a guy or we know a woman or we know a group of people who can help us with that. Um, and so we help them identify key advisors to move them along that pipeline. Right. Okay. And uh, I suppose, do you find that that's often uh, met with acceptance from the existing professional team? or Generally speaking, yeah. Um, as long as it's always introduced that, you know, these people will not in any way supplant your relationship with this client. I mean, that is the core relationship and we respect that um, deeply. We have to because otherwise, you know, that would be a short a short road that we would walk. Um, but as soon as you explain the value, the incremental value and why that person's important, often that other professional will say, actually, that's great. Um, you know, why don't we bring them in and let them provide that one little piece and solve that one piece of the puzzle? Right. So uh, we were chatting earlier and you had mentioned uh, you've run into situations in the past where you know, family organization, generation one wants to transfer to generation two. Maybe generation two isn't ready yet. Yeah. How do you broach that topic? That's got to be an elephant in the room. It is, yeah. And, you know, we hit it head on. We, one of the luxuries that we have as someone who's not part of the family, not part of the business, is we can speak truth. Um, and they know that there's no edge. Mm -hmm. we, we really do care deeply about the family and about the business. And what, what I'll often say to someone is, if we put the, your daughter or your son or 
whoever it is, if they're not ready, we are doing them no favors. We are setting them up for failure. And I know you care about them. So that's not good. And it's sure not going to be good for your business or your team that you've just spent decades building up. So we have to almost help them understand what the, why that is actually the kindest thing that they can do as a parent. It's hard as a parent because the parent's heart is that they want to do this for their kids. Mm -hmm. um, but we bring them back to reality and say, you know, treat your family like a family and care about them deeply um, and the business like a business and give the business the TLC that it needs to. And by the way, just because they're not ready today doesn't mean they're not going to be ready. We regularly have um, development plans for successors that have to be built. But I mean, putting someone in charge of a you know, 20 or $50 million business when they're not ready is like handing a 16-year-old young man who's just gotten his driver's license the keys to a Lamborghini. It will not end well. So why would we do that as parents? We, we have to help them understand, no, no, there's a way to prepare them. Let's figure out where the deficits are. And the kids actually often really appreciate it because we put them with a great mentor or put them on, a, you know, get some training for them. And they're going, oh, this is exactly what we need. Now, they have to be ready for that. And we were working with a family in business here in, in Edmonton where both of the sons thought they were absolutely ready. Um, problem is that, you know, they couldn't get along. And we had said, no, what would be really great would be to bring in, because the parents wanted to retire. Right. Of course, they want to get out and enjoy some of their life, which they should. Mm -hmm. um, but they don't want to be in there holding this fort together. So what we said is, look, let's get another CEO in there for just a transitional period. We're not sure how long it's going to be, but he will mentor these two guys bring them up to speed. And if they're ready at some point, they can take over. And if they're not, at least the company's protected and you guys can go spend time in the desert or whatever you want to do. And uh, the sons really resisted it at first because they felt like it was the opportunity being taken away. But as they began to see that this was actually the best thing for them to grow as professionals, to actually get mom and dad out of the business, which they wanted to do, um, they said, okay, we're open to that. And so that helped them a lot. Right. So you'd mentioned, you know, development plan, you know, trying to bring generation two up to the point where they're ready to go in. And, and part of that, I guess, you know, could be a, a transitional CEO coming in. Yeah. Are there any sort of other functional tests or, or um, sort of, you know, what else might be on that development plan? You know, uh, the first thing I ask when I'm meeting with young uh, would-be um, heirs to the business is I go through just some financial mm -hmm. questions with them. And I find out pretty quickly whether they know their way around a balance sheet or a P&L statement or a cash flow, if they understand how receivables work. Like, there is a lot of financial expertise that you need to run a company well. Mm -hmm. um, the funny thing is some founders actually don't have all of those themselves, but they have a great account, which is fine. But if we're going to test the preparedness of the next generation, I can ask those questions. And that's likely where it'll often show up. They really haven't necessarily even been exposed to some of those things. So how could we expect that they would have it? The good news in that example is that that's a relatively easy thing to train. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you suggest like an educational program or a couple courses or yeah. you know, somebody with functional background that can come in and teach those. Even just some mentoring, you know, sure. with someone who's a great accountant or, or uh, another CEO. Mentoring is actually a great thing. You know, you can set them up in uh, mentor relationships with other CEOs. There are lots of peer advisory groups like YPO or uh, McKay Forum or, you know, tech or different kinds. And it depends on the person, what they need. Mm -hmm. But those things can often be great rocket fuels for their career as well. Sure. And if they never end up running the company, it will help prepare them for a better future. So there's no downside. Yeah. <laughs> so... We've talked about generation two coming up, wanting to take over. Generation one knows maybe there's a gap. How do you address key employees? Because 
there's going to be employees in organizations that aren't family members that potentially think they're on rise to the top. How do you navigate those waters? Yeah, that's a great question. And I would say that's a double-edged sword. So yes, there may be uh, key employees that think that they're going to rise to the top. And quite honestly, if that's not going to happen, the kindest thing to do is to help them understand that as soon as possible, especially because they probably have a key role in bringing along those next uh, gen leaders. But the other side of that sword is that there are often people, in fact, I would say in the majority of cases, there are key employees going, I am very worried that there's not a good succession or transition plan. You know, the leader or the CEO says, you know, that she's planning to retire, but I see no evidence of that. I know the son or daughter is not ready. I'm really worried about my job. Quite frankly, if they get hit at a railway crossing tomorrow, maybe uh, the person's spouse is now running this company and they haven't got a clue. They've never been inside the door. So allaying concerns about who's going to take over, when they're going to take over, um, the safety of the jobs of key employees, uh, in fact, their integral role in terms of that transition process is a key piece of the communication that has to happen. Right. So, and how do you communicate uh, the desire of a founder to transition to key employees or even non-key employees? At some point, rumors are going to start to spread. So what has to take place there? Yeah, proactively is the quick answer. Um, the sooner you're on that is the better. I mean, it just settles things down because people are thinking those thoughts anyway. Right. They're wondering. And when people start to wonder um, and not know, they make assumptions. They fill in the blanks with the best understanding that they've got, which is usually wrong. <laughs> so getting out ahead of those kinds of things, or at least catching up to them, is very, very important. And so what we'll do is, you know, on a very um, close basis, we'll bring in key employees and with the founder, and we'll help them articulate what's going to happen. Then once the plan is more fleshed out and we've got agreement and everything is, is fairly firmed up, we make sure there's good communication within the company um, and so that everybody can feel good about that. And it actually is very helpful for lots of people. It's good for everyone in the company to know where the company is going strategically, leadership-wise. Uh, key suppliers love to know it too. Oh, you know, this is an important client of mine. I can see how they're going to continue to be an important client of mine. Um, if they're uh, key customers, wow, I wonder what's going to happen when Joe dies and he's looking kind of old these days. Have we got a plan here? Because that's an important link to my company. So everyone benefits if we can have great clarity around that future. Right. Cam and Tcam take four. So, Greg, I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about the three-circle model. Sure. So, first of all, I shouldn't get credit for this. This was developed in the Harvard in the 1970s, but it's used globally. Like I've literally run into it in Europe and other places as well, Asia. And uh, what it basically says is that there are three um, dynamics in any family business uh, succession. The first is the family dynamic. The second is the business dynamic. And the third is an ownership um, most owners experience all three at once. They're in the eye of the hurricane, and it all seems like they're in the, the center of that. But if you think about a simple thing like a husband and wife working together in a business, and they get a divorce. The divorce happens in the family dynamic. It is a family uh, phenomena, but it absolutely will affect things in the business. If they're both working in the business, how does that work? Right. It could also affect the ownership dynamic. 
So you, what we always say is you have to think about how the family impacts the business, the business impacts the family. And of course, especially in transition and succession, we have to think about what, what about ownership? How does the family affect ownership or how does the business affect ownership? Can we have people who are family members who own shares if they don't work in the business? Can they uh, be family members that are uh, owners without working in the business, but what about if they get out of the business? Can they still have shares? Uh, can they still work in the business? So there's all these questions. And most families haven't thought through all of those kinds of things and they bump into it and it's like, huh. So having the three circles helps them separate those conversations and think about what makes the most sense for our family? What makes the most sense for our business? What's the best way to structure our ownership? And it shifts over time. As families grow, you can just imagine, you know, now all of a sudden we've got, you know, what was, what was a mom and dad now has, you know, three kids or they've got with grandkids. Um, and some of them are working in the business and they want to get into ownership. Well, how does that work? So what was a simple conversation between a husband and wife around business issues on a Saturday night years ago now is much more complex. Right. So every part of the organization and the family and the ownership revolves around those three circles. And what happens in one could very easily impact what's happening in the other. Yeah, all does all day long. Right. Well, Greg, thank you so much for being with us today. So to sum it up, if you were to answer the question, what do they not tell you about succession and business uh, transition? I think that the thing that they're least likely to tell you that, that business owners are facing are the very, very difficult and challenging things that are not transactionally uh, based. They're not about doing a USA or a, a restructuring or anything. They're the real live relational issues that they have either within the workplace with their key employees or their family members and trying to figure out what the best way forward is that protects the family and the business. The problem is they're not really thinking that any advisor wants to hear about or has much value to add, especially on the relational stuff and the family stuff. But they don't understand that in fact, because that advisor sits outside of the family dynamic and outside of the business, they're probably in a very, very good position to help them with those very questions. Right. Well, Greg, thank you so much for your time today. And thank you for joining us today. This has been the first episode of What They Don't Tell You. And we we'll look forward to seeing you again with some other stuff. Well, how do you want me to go out on, the, on this? Good point. Uh, yeah, I could say like join us next time where we're going to continue talking to Greg about some of the more functional or tangible aspects of succession planning. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, I didn't, yeah, I was, I kind of figured that you were going to, because I think you said before you were going to do like a, yeah, that had scenes from the next episode, but so, sorry, screwed up. But we still might, I think we'll just get this, just have it. Okay. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much for your time today, Greg. Thank you. And thank you for joining us for our first episode of What They Don't Tell You. In our next episode coming up, we're going to be talking to Greg a little bit more about some of the more functional steps that can be take place. Stupid. <laughs> Sorry. 
Thanks very much for your time today, Greg. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on our very first episode of What They Don't Tell You. In our next episode, we're going to continue the conversation with Greg. He's going to tell us a little bit more about some of the functional steps that take place in business succession planning. Let's do it just one more time. Um, it just gives a bit more of a pause with things. Like when? Yeah. At the end? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Oh, okay. It might be a bit awkward. But... Okay. <laughs> okay. Thanks very much for your time today, Greg. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on our first episode of What They Don't Tell You. We'll see you next time. Thanks very much for your time today, Greg. Thank you. And thank you for joining us on our first episode of What They Don't Tell You. Please join us again next time. Let's try the intro one more time. Great. Yeah, let's do it. It's the hardest part of the whole thing. <laughs> okay. Um, hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us today. My name is Robert Bradburn. I am the AVP of Wealth Advisory Services for CWB Wealth Management. I'm joined today by Greg Becker. Greg is the owner of Predictable Futures. Uh, Greg joins us today with experience uh, in executive programs from Wharton and MIT. He also has an MBA from Western University. Greg, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. Camera B and C, take five. And Hello, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Today, we're with Greg Becker one more time. I'm going to screw that up again. Start it again, sorry. Hello, everyone. Thanks very much for joining us today. We're joined again by Greg Becker from Sustainable Futures. Sorry, you threw me off. That's okay. Predictable features. Predictable, yeah. <laughs> um, sorry, is this in Okay. Hello, everyone. Thanks again for joining us today. We're joined today by Greg Becker from Predictable Futures. Greg works with business owners of small to large size corporations and helping them prepare for business succession and transition conversations. So, Greg, thanks very much for joining us. Good to be here. So, Greg, you and I were chatting earlier, and I understand that uh, something like 60% of privately owned businesses are looking to transition in the next five years, but 80% of them don't have a plan to do that. Yeah. How does that strike you? Well, I mean, the 60% makes sense because you just think of the demographic shift of the boomers retiring and all of that. So, you know, no big surprise there. 
And actually for me, the 80% isn't surprising either because we talk to business owners all the time who definitely have thought about succession. It's not that it's not top of mind uh, and probably increasingly as they age, but that they don't have a formal plan, that's probably consistent with what we experience. Um, they may have a loose idea, they may have done some of the work, um, but they probably haven't got all the details thought through, some of which they might not even know what those details are, and you don't know until you bump into them. Secondly, if they do have a lot of it worked out, they may or may not have communicated it well to all the people, the stakeholders that it affects. So, you know, to me, that's not really a fully thought through plan and can create problems for sure. So when you sit down with somebody that they're confident they have a plan, they're ready to go, yeah. where do you start in that conversation? What, what would you say to them? Well, we usually go through about, you know, three or five questions uh, that will just uh, test their readiness and, and what in fact they have done. Mm -hmm. um, and if we start to sense any weakness or holes or gaps, then we just go deeper on the conversation. Sure. <clears throat> so you had mentioned previously a, a topic that you have described as a crash test. Yeah. So what is a crash test? How is that used? Yeah, it's an extension of the concept of, of helping people understand where the gaps may be and what they might need to work on to really get, nail their transition well. So when we have the assembled family, if you can imagine a family business and they've got all the, and the spouses in the room and everybody there, um, we will kind of let the founder and their partner know that at a certain signal, they should just quietly step out of the room. Um, and so we give them a signal and everyone's kind of chatting. And all of a sudden they get up and they leave and everyone's looking around going, what happened? And the door closes. And we say, you know, we're sorry to tell you this, but we regret to say that your parents were killed today at a railway crossing and we have some questions. Now, everybody understands it's a construct. Everyone knows that because they just saw them walk out of the room. But you would be amazed at how the air gets sucked out of the room in that moment because we start to ask them questions. And most of the questions they don't know about um, the answers, you know, they will say, well, what about something like something as simple as the executor of the will, but certainly in terms of the functioning of the business. And so um, when those um, when those questions begin to arise that don't have answers for that group of people, and by the way, we do resurrect the parents and bring them back in at some point. <laughs> um, and of course, the family has lots of questions and they should. They then all begin to understand, oh, okay, there are other things that either haven't been figured out or maybe are figured out but aren't quite right or they've figured out but they haven't been communicated or whatever it is. And that gives you a good sense of where we might need to go with the, uh, with the plan. Sorry guys, we're just getting cut here. Tight. B and C cam, take six. So, Greg, you had mentioned previously something about a crash test. How does that impact a conversation that you're going to have with Generation 1 and Generation 2? Yeah, a lot of times when we want uh, families to grapple with what the issues are that they need to fill in in terms of their transition planning, uh, we will do a what we call a crash test. We'll have the family assembled in a boardroom at a predetermined signal. The parents or the owners of the business will step out of the room, closing the door behind them. And they actually don't know what this is about either. Um, and when the door closes, everyone else is kind of looking on going, what's going on? Because it's just weird. It's an They're unusual gone. dynamic. But then we simply turn to them and say, you know, we regret to tell you that today your parents or whatever it was were killed at a railway crossing. And they understand that it's a construct and that it's artificial because they just watch them walk out the room. But you'd be amazed at how it sucks the air out of the room as they begin to start think about what does that mean for them. 
Um, and the questions start to come. And if they don't, we always, we can prime the pump and we can ask them questions. And they quickly begin to understand the areas where they either don't have the information or there hasn't been a decision made or there's things that are in place that need to get uh, changed or whatever it is. Then, of course, we resurrect the parents, uh, bring them back in, and then they can face the family or the extended group to say, okay, what do we need to talk about and figure out mm -hmm. to really make sure this plan is robust and can do the job that it needs to do? Wow. So when you remove the parents and all of a sudden it's up to the rest of the family to decide how things are going to go forward, you must learn a lot about the family dynamics at that point in time. Yeah, you know, one of the things, the individual interviews that we do help us understand the issues. So we're rarely surprised at the issues. But what we don't know is how they behave as a family in those kinds of situations. And so, for instance, you can just imagine, I remember this one woman who uh, all of a sudden she just took control. And I didn't expect that. But she was clearly the leader in the family. And so she said, well, guys, what do we need about, do you know about this? And I'm watching her. She was amazing, by the way. She was awesome. And, uh, but I would have never known that, that she had that key role to play in the, from a leadership inside the family. Mm -hmm. So in that sort of scenario, does that change how you might approach the rest of the consultation going forward? Absolutely, because if you know that, and let's just stay with that example, that would be operative then in the family when uh, either you know a tragedy did happen or even if just parents uh, pass away naturally, you know that those natural leaders do emerge, that the rest of the family might not be surprised by that. But the question is, do those people understand their role in leadership? Do they have the information they need to lead well? Um, how can we help them do a great job of that? And sometimes, you know, they might be the, the natural leader or they might think they are. And someone else might actually not think they are. Right. And we can begin to work on that dynamic so that if they do get surprised or if there's just the natural things unfold, that they handle that dynamic better, which reduces conflict in the family and keeps everyone safer. So what should be the end result of a crash test? You have a natural leader that perhaps steps up. Uh, we know the parents are gone. Now what? Well, the biggest thing is, to, as I say, to expose those areas of planning that maybe have either not been thought through or not been executed or have not been communicated. And so we, we can make a list of those things. And if they haven't been done or they're not done well, we can make sure they do get done. If they have been done, then we can make sure that everybody understands them so that uh, there's not a fear or concern uh, and people know you can sleep at night knowing that everything is handled. Sure. So how early would you get involved with a corporation that's thinking about succession? How long would that process take? <laughs> I imagine yeah. it's going to take a while. Never early enough. <laughs> uh, you know, again, because most entrepreneurs think they've handled it or at least they've begun to think about it, mm -hmm. uh, oftentimes they have a lot to do that they may not even understand has to happen. Um, something as simple as preparing a company for a sale has there are certain documents, of course, and the lawyers and accountants will be very good at helping with that. But the conversations and figuring out, you know, before you can do, for instance, a unanimous shareholder agreement, you have to know, well, who's going to sign it? Who's becoming a shareholder? On what basis? Can they afford it? What will that do to their family? What are the implications for the grandchildren? You know, uh, do we see this being family uh, transition only? In other words, can it only stay within the blood or could spouses own it? Um, and we often see a lot of uh, differences between what a will would say and a unanimous shareholder would say, a share, uh, shareholder's agreement. So if you have a disconnect between those two, it can create a problem. So the sooner we can get working on those things, because they take time, um, and they take time because not because the documents take a long time to execute, it's because you have to figure it all out and you have to agree it in a healthy way. And that really takes time. So the sooner we get involved, the better. 
So what's it look like when that process is rushed? I imagine you must run into clients that come to you and they want to they transition the next six months, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Yeah, they, they want to crash, hence mm. the term crash. They want to crash it through uh, because they're very focused on the transition, mm. uh, pardon me, the transaction. They're very focused on getting that shareholder agreement done, getting the shares transferred, getting the sale done so they can get some money off the table. And those are important things. We always get that, of course. But the problem is, is that if you rush through that relational stuff, the scars and the, um, the impacts on those relationships are long lasting. And if you crash it through and say, well, great, I got, you know, my job's done. I've given my son or daughter the shares and now they're leading the company. If they aren't ready mm -hmm. and you are uh, dependent on that person running that company well, and your retirement actually depends on getting the dollars out of your business and they crash your, your business or sub-optimize it, your retirement can be at risk. So moving through it too swiftly is not uh, in anyone's best interest. Usually you have to go uh, a little slower at the front end to go faster at the back end. Yeah, so that must be sometimes frustrating to clients to, to learn that they've got to kind of start at the very bottom and work their way up to the top of the transaction. Only momentarily. Yeah. Once they start to realize how it can actually prevent them from achieving their goals, they actually figure it out pretty fast. I mean, these are very smart. These are people who built businesses and run them and, and they're very capable people. And when they start to see the flaw, then they go, oh, okay, hang on a sec. Because they don't want to mess up the business or their family either. Sure, well, that makes sense. So you, you'd mentioned um, you know, wanting to understand their goals and, and wanting to define what those goals look like. How do you do that? What's that process? Yeah, well, it's a several stage process. Uh, when, you know, when you say to somebody, well, what are your goals for the next mm -hmm. five years? chances are they may not have thought that through. Like a lot of people just don't. So the first step is that we will do that individually and we will uh, do that with them and we'll help them with the question and they'll think it through and they'll answer. And that might take quite a while in the, in the thing. And then they go away, of course, and they think about it some more. Maybe they talk about it with their partner or whatever. And it begins to develop more in their mind. The next, so that's the second step. But then when we get them together as a family and they share with, it, with all of their goals, so they can each hear what each other's goals are about. Um, they articulate it to everybody else. And that's another way of sharpening their own focus. Um, and by then they will be ready for the question. They'll have a much better answer for it. And then even, you know, quite frankly, we, our goals change over time anyway. So they continue to refine it as they move forward. So it sounds like maybe going through a financial planning process at the beginning before they engage or at the same time they're engaging with yourself would be beneficial? That would be a great thing to do, you know, because uh, that covers off a lot of the financial, but even some of the non-financial questions that they have to resolve. And the broader that those questions can be, uh, the better. You know, if you just think of someone who's in their early 30s and the parents want them to take over the business, that has huge implications for their family life or for whatever their their situation might be in terms of the financial impacts of that, but also in terms of where they're going to live, what they're going to be doing. If they're going to be working in the business, that means they're not going to be doing some other job. Um, so working through those questions and helping them land it. And for someone who might be in their 20s, late 20s, early 30s, those questions are often still being gelled. They haven't quite necessarily nailed all those things down. So those are significant life decisions that we're asking them to make and commit to. Um, so you can't rush that. Yeah, absolutely. So I wonder, we've discussed a little bit about the, the emotional side, getting to know the people in the family, kind of who's in control, who's a natural leader and, and, and whatnot. 
we're starting to talk a little bit more now about some of the functional aspects. What would you say some of the biggest obstacles that you see as a consultant in terms of the functional planning of the transition from generation one to generation two, or even from you know a, a generation one to a non-arm's length, arm's length party? Yeah, when you say functional, I just want to make sure I understand what you mean by that. What, can you yeah, so so you know, making sure that you have the right leadership structure in place, or making sure that you have um, you know the right key employees that are going to stick around after the transition takes place. Right. You know, how does the business operate once um, you know generation one has moved on? Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing I like to point out to founders, uh, and this is sometimes hard for them to hear, but the next twenty years won't be like the last twenty years. <laughs> And so whatever you did really well, which by the way, you did do really well, that's why you have such a great company, is probably not going to necessarily get you where you need to be. And you'll need a different leader because there's different challenges. Um, and you might need all kinds of other differences in the business structurally, um, skill sets, financial capacity, there's all sorts of things that have to be considered. For them as the owner, very hard for them to think it through. They, they've never had to live that. Um, they could imagine that, but I can tell you the next generation is thinking very much about those very topics. And uh, they may have a bit of a different dream about where that business will go as well. So the first thing is to talk about the goals, then to say, okay, if that's the goal, what do we need to put in place and how can we help you get there? Sure. So what does that conversation look like? We have generation two that has a different idea of where it should go versus generation one who's created it, you know, built the company. And although they're transitioning, they still want to have a hand on the steering wheel. Yeah. And, you know, and it's a both and because in fact, you do want to maintain the wisdom and all the experience of those people who built the business. And a lot of the next gen really want to respect and honor their family and their parents who've done a great job. Um, so that's super important. And we, we always try and preserve that. Um, but we also try and open their minds to what might be needed. It might be different kind of training than their parents ever had, uh, but it's needed. Um, just you think about something as simple as the, the technology requirements of a business today versus 20 years ago. Um, the other thing that we've often put in place is advisory boards, which um, most private companies don't want to go to a fiduciary board. They don't want to lose any control. But an advisory board is a great way for parents moving out of leadership to move into an oversight role where they're still engaged. They're still able to watch over their investment, to provide input on a strategic level, to ask questions, to, to stay close to it without being involved in the day-to-day, -day, which is helpful to them so they can actually retire. But it's also helpful to the next generation. So mom and dad don't have their fingers in the business and it's constantly being meddled with. Uh, so an advisory board can often be a helpful way to uh, create some separation between the founder and the business at the same time, bringing in external advisors who have wisdom and experience outside the business, outside the bubble that they can bring to bear. I love that idea of an advisory board. So you'd mentioned bringing in potentially some outside experts as well, some additional professionals. Who would sit on that board? What's that look like? <laughs> well, it's usually not what the founder thinks of the first day. <laughs> because we put so many boards together, it's funny because they usually come in with a clear idea. You know, they say, I know someone, that's my accountant, it's whatever, the close advisor, trusted people, of course smart people. But what we do is we actually back up and say, what do we need for that next one to five years of guidance on this business? What If we could imagine the perfect set of skill sets, not people, expertise, experience, education, uh, qualifications, wisdom around the table, what would all those components look like? And we isolate them. And then we say, who are the internal members of the board? Typically, it's the shareholders. 
What do they have? And we can tick off most of the, uh, much of that list. And then we say, where are the gaps? Because there's some stuff that maybe they don't have, but that's who we're looking for. Then we can go out and look for those external advisors based essentially on a gap analysis mm -hmm. and bring in the right board members, which are probably not who they thought were the people in the first place. So you had used the term fiduciary board versus advisory board. Could mm -hmm. you kind of just explain a little bit? Absolutely, of the yeah. Um, there are basically two types of boards. One is fiduciary, which means they have a legal obligation representing the shareholders to make decisions on behalf of the company. Mm -hmm. So they actually have a legal responsibility, obligation, uh, and right to make decisions on behalf of the company, or on behalf of the shareholders for the company. So they can literally tell management what to do. An advisory board is just that. There is no legal right nor obligation, but they can provide wisdom and experience and they can have input to decisions that the company is going to make. So the shareholder maintains all control uh, and final uh, decision-making ability, but they get the advantage of those third-party advisors who uh, can help them make good decisions. And the funny thing is, is my experience with those board members, whether they be fiduciary or advisory, is they actually don't behave differently in a board meeting. They take their responsibility just as seriously, even if they're advisory. At the end of the day, they don't make the decision, but they will be crystal clear in terms of what they think should happen. Is there hesitation from either one of uh, the parties in the, in the transaction, whether generation one or generation two? Is there hesitation to bring a board into the picture? Does that... Well, sometimes, scare them? you know, if it's something they're not familiar with. Um, uh, oftentimes, though, one or both of them is actually quite keen. Mm. Uh, if you can imagine a next gen coming in, they're saying, this is a great way for my parents or father or mother or whoever it is to have a place to go where they can still be engaged with the business, but not in an operational way. So it's actually quite healthy. Um, at the same time that those parents, who are often very smart, are saying, this is a great place for us to exercise our oversight without having to come in every day because we want to be down in Palm Springs or somewhere. So does a, does a board create an additional expense? Is that something that business owners should be thinking about? Uh, it does. I mean, there's certainly an annual expense for hiring those bo uh, board members. Say there's two external board members. Um, but I always say to them, let's think about what that total expense is. And, you know, usually it is a mic micron on their bottom line. It's really not material, but it feels like it because these are entrepreneurs. They spent their whole life building wealth. Uh, nickels and dimes matter. Mm -hmm. So if there's not value, they would be very quick to say, we don't need that, especially because it also adds time and, and so on. So what I do is I say to them, well, if you could spend 98% of your time working in the business and 2% of your time working on the business, does that seem like a good trade-off? And they go, well, yeah, that's a really good thing. You know, 98%, 99%, because that's roughly about the amount of time that they would give to a board. And the amount of cost is much less than 1%. That's a great analogy. That makes yeah. sense. Well, it just helps create some sense of scale to what the, the investment is. Mm -hmm. But honestly, most businesses, if you think about making a bad decision, um, you can blow the amount, you know, tens of, thousands of dollars easy with one bad decision. You can also sub-optimize on a decision that could have been much more productive for your company. Why not invest it to minimize those bad decisions and maximize the good options? So it's really a risk management and optimization question. So, Camera B and C, take seven. Whenever you're ready. 
So Greg, at CWB Wealth Management, we meet lots of business owners every day. Sometimes we'll ask them about their business succession plans and they don't really want to get into it. It seems like they're stuck. Do you run into that situation? Oh yeah, yeah, that's super normal. I mean, there are so many ways to be stuck on that kind of thing. As soon as I heard a kick, I went, yeah, that's the end of that take. B and C, take eight. Okay, wait, are we ready, sir? Cool. So, Greg, at CWB Wealth Management, we often meet business owners, sometimes daily, that when we ask them about their business succession plans, they don't want to get into it. It feels like they're stuck. I'm sure you must run into that all the time. Yeah, yeah, we do, of course. And there's so many ways. They probably don't think of being stuck, but practically they are. Uh, they might, uh, for instance, uh, have had pieces of their plan that they just keep thinking, oh, well, I'll get to that, but they never do. Mm-hmm. Or they may have difficult conversations that have to be had to, in order to actually execute on that plan. And they don't want to have that conversation, so they kick the can down the road. Uh, or they may even have difficulties within the family. Like they might not yet know what their kids are going to, how they're going to develop and what their kids want to do. Or they may have a disagreement with their partner in terms of who should lead the business next and all. Or should they even keep it within the family and try and, mm-hmm. try and sell it to a third party? So there's a lot of reasons. But the key is to get at those very reasons. The very thing that's causing them to be stuck or to not move ahead are the very things that probably will have the greatest value if they can actually get those things resolved and have a peace of mind and a sense of process and a map going forward. Greg, you had mentioned before that uh, often like the vast majority of the people you work with are owner operators. And when an owner operator transitions out of the company, what does that do to their, their identity of who they are? That must make it uh, seem like a mountain to overcome. Yeah, you know, that is very true and everyone focuses on the departure of the leader because it's a leadership question within the company and there's a void and that does have to get figured out a lot of attention gets focused there rightfully so but almost nobody thinks about the other side which is the day you walk out of that business that has been creating that sense of uh purpose for you every day your identity a place to even just go um what happens next and in fact that's something that will keep some founders from moving forward because they don't know either um, they're pretty sure their spouse doesn't want them in the kitchen all day, uh, but they don't necessarily know what else that they could do with their life. Um, you know, you can only play so much golf, you can only do so many recreational things, and so they haven't figured that out. And that takes time. That's, again, another reason to move sooner rather than later on thinking through that uh, process so that they can begin to get a sense of path forward. Right, right. So we've had a great discussion today. And I'm wondering if we were to just wrap this up and say, uh, how would you answer this question? Greg, what do they not tell you about business succession planning? Yeah, I think a lot of clients won't tell you the, the thing that really keeps them awake at night, the thing that gnaws at their soul, that uh, is just hard to talk about, the very difficult emotional issues that they even have a hard time sometimes conceptualizing or, or getting a clarity on. Um, those are the things that they don't know how to resolve themselves and is capable uh, effective, uh, successful leaders, it's hard to say that or to talk to anyone about. So they will not tell you necessarily that I don't know what to, where to go from here. That's a hard place for a leader to admit to be. Absolutely. 
Greg, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. It's been good. Thank you. And thank you very much for joining us today. We hope you'll tune in next time. What? Hey, Camera B and C, take nine. So sorry, am I doing an intro as well? Or are we just jumping into this? Just into those pickup bits there. Yeah. Oh, okay. But not like the main deal again. Got it. Good. Okay. Uh, yeah, okay. So, Greg, um, I'm wondering, oftentimes when you're working with the owner-operator, they've got some family that's involved in the business. They probably have some key employees that are not family that are also involved in the business. What sort of uh, decision-making process does a family go through with they're going to sell the company to a third-party arm's-length buyer versus selling it to somebody inside of their family? Well, uh, the first decision, of course, is that fork in the road of who do we sell to, and that's not a small decision. I mean, in some ways, if you sell to a third-party arm's-length or the employees, uh, it's simpler because there's less emotion. You're not dealing with some of the family dynamics in terms of the continuity of the, the business. But I can tell you that there's also other challenges that come into play. For instance, if the parents decide or the owner decides that he's going to sell to a third party or she will sell to a third party and the next generation is going, no, no, we would like to buy it or uh, we thought that was something that we would have. Or the other one that we'll see often is that this has some emotional value or sentimental value to the family. Oh, you know, you can't sell that. That was a grandma and grandpa's or something, you know, our family legacy. So that does take some navigation. Uh, however, once you've got that navigated, then there's still all the usual questions that have to happen. Um, and they take a bit of a different slant if you're going to a third party. So a simple example would be if you're selling to a third party, you know, you may have an earnout or a time that you'll be around as the owner, often not. Uh, but it's definitely going to be different than if you're selling to a family where you will probably have an ongoing involvement over time. Uh, it has an implication in terms of your planning horizons financially because often the payout is over time with your family as you know the next gen buys in. They may not have the capital, but the family has patient capital that allows for that. With a third party, that can be accelerated and crystallize that event very, very quickly. So the liquidity event can change the way you plan that answer though is that it often changes in really good ways things you can do with that too because those assets while they change uh, form are still there so maybe you've liquid liquidated uh, land or a farm or something like that but now you simply have cash you still have to manage it you still have to decide what you're going to do in terms of your estate plan or your retirement or whatever it is you may want to fund the next generation in an entirely new business in a different direction uh, so oftentimes we'll have families and say, we don't want to do that anymore, but we think we could do this instead. Right. That makes good sense. So when you're working uh, with these owner-operator corporations, is there a difference in the way that you're going to approach uh, your task if it's a internal family buyer or if it's a third-party arm's-length buyer? Well, certainly uh, the nature of the conversation changes, but the process stays the same. Because when you think about what we're doing, we're really saying, who are the stakeholders? And the family member stakeholders don't change. Uh, the founders don't change and that sort of thing. It's simply the buyers that will now be taking it and going a different direction. But all those other people still have to have some say in this significant event that is going to change uh, what their family business and enterprise has been built upon for sometimes generations. Sure. Do you find that often 
third-party buyers are going to want the original owner or somebody from that key management group to stick around and be a part of that transition process? What's that look yeah, like? Yeah, it depends widely. You know, sometimes uh, we've seen it where, and just had one this about last month, I guess it was, where absolutely they did not want that. And part of it was because the legacy thinking of that old owner, I don't mean to say old, but you know, the previous owner, um, was not what they needed and they knew that he would be in the way and it would be hard on him as well to see things change that he had spent you know decades building up so they made a very fast change and he was completely out and that was the deal uh, other times they absolutely appreciate and value the continuity and the ongoing nature of it but i can tell you from having worked in family businesses and led them when i have the owner still kind of hanging around mm -hmm. uh, even though he or she may not be involved in the day-to-day it can be very confusing because the staff that have gone to that person as the leader and owner for, you know, 10 years or 20 years, see me, they see him or her and they go, well, who has the final say here? And it can create, if they don't keep clear boundaries on their role, it can create a lot of challenges for the management team. So if we're dealing with that situation, you have to make sure that you do do a great job of role definition mm -hmm. and then of uh, some kind of process check to make sure that they actually live up to those uh, boundaries. Craig, I wonder what else uh, should family businesses and, and the key leadership within those organizations, what should they be aware of when they approach the transition topic? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we talk a lot is the value that you want out of the business and how you want it out. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're selling to a third party, the way to build the value up so that you can maximize that value on sale, which goes directly to your retirement sure. or to your family, uh, can take some time. So what do we need to do to make sure that you can maximize that value? If it's staying inside the company, maybe that's a lesser amount. In fact, from a taxation point of view, maybe you want to minimize the value of that. Um, but uh, that can take a long time, uh, a long time in terms of the leadership development. And what about your role after the uh, sale and what will happen? Are you going to be involved at a board level? Are you going to just go and enjoy retirement? Or what's your, are you going to be another uh, serial entrepreneur and have another business and to think through those kinds of things because depending on what your answer is to those questions you might approach your transition and the process differently sure that makes sense thanks greg yeah you bet yeah thanks very much for your time today greg really appreciate the insight and answers You're welcome and thank you very much for joining us today we hope you'll join us again next time